This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Ipsos Public Affairs asked Canadians about whether a list of high-profile individuals from political leaders to CEOs to celebrities belong on Santa's nice list or his naughty list. Joining us now to discuss who gets a lump of coal for this Christmas is Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning, Jazz. Well, let's uh, let's start right at the top. Uh, Justin Trudeau, how did our Prime Minister fare this year? Oh, he's been a naughty boy. Forty <laughs> percent uh, of Canadians have him on the naughty list, which is number two, just behind Vladimir Putin, oh, the wow. president of Russia. And Putin is at forty-four. Trudeau is at forty. Wow! And and is that just uh, political? Uh, that's based on Canadians uh, deciding along political lines what they think of him, or is it uh, something else? Yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it. It's it's really uh, the prime minister has gone through the full cycle from you know the darling of 2015 now to where he is, and uh, there's uh, he's he's a fairly divisive politician in Canada. So there are people who like him. I think 19 percent had him on the on the uh, on the nice list, mm-hmm. uh, but um, there's a, a substantial number of Canadians who are just not Trudeau fans anymore. Wow. And and in regards to premiers, um, who's doing poorly and perhaps who's doing not too bad? Well, Premier Ford in the province of Ontario, but because, you know, Ontario makes up such a big chunk of the, the overall Canadian population, it has a higher weight, I'd say, in the, in, in the national numbers. So he comes in number three. Um, and uh, then we see people like, uh, for example, the president of China. Actually, Doug Ford does worse than the president <laughs> of China right now in our national numbers. But interestingly, just two points behind the president of China is Joe Biden. Wow. Wow. Is it just Canadians just uh, uh, frustrated with uh, our present relationship? Generally, under Democrats, things are they're a bit more protectionist in the U.S. Uh, is it a Trump uh, era sort of uh, leftovers? Or is, what is the reasoning behind that? Well, I think, you know, over the space of this last two years, as people have, uh, uh, you know, and we're back into it now, you know, disappointments of not being able to get this this coronavirus crisis behind us, they turn to their political leaders and, uh, you know, they're the people who are in charge. And if we're not making progress, somebody needs to be to blame. So at the moment, it's them. Wow. Particularly when you take a look at who does really well on the nice list, which is the, you know, obviously the, uh, the converse to, uh, to who's naughty. So who is on the nice list? Healthcare workers. Mm. At the very top. And, and, you know, 54% have them as uh, number one on on their nice list. But followed by a British Columbia resident, Ryan Reynolds, at 29%. (laughs) And I I think Ryan Reynolds is a really interesting case because, you know, people, uh, you know, we usually, when we do these lists, and we do them every year, celebrities tend to, you know, come in reasonably well. But his seems to be of a different character. It's not just notoriety. Uh, because of his success in, uh, in in the entertainment industry, but also it's an acknowledgement that people think that he's really making a positive contribution to the country. So, you know, good on him. Yeah, and he's one of those celebrities that does uh, comment uh, on uh, public, public issues once in a while. He'll donate money, uh, and uh, he speaks proudly as a Canadian, even though he's uh, living in the United States and is very successful in his line of work. Uh, but uh, he certainly does articulate um, our core values here uh, in, in in Canada. Now, one of the uh, I guess the on the on the corporate side, tech CEOs uh, I think aren't doing very well. I guess that would speak to Canadians and their skepticism of tech, and uh, which is probably a, one could argue. You know, not only here but in the United States and Europe as well, there is a growing backlash or pushback against tech to a certain degree. Yeah, there is. So, you know, also on the naughty list, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and and uh, and Jeff Bezos uh, from 
Facebook and from, or I guess Meta now, and uh, and uh, from Amazon, uh, both not doing well. But the interesting thing is, if you if you take this back five years, both of these guys would be doing very well. Mm-hmm. So they've gone through a cycle too. So what's happened with the technology industry? is that they are now under uh, a much um, more scrutiny and deeper suspicion than they were previously. And it's everything from, you know, the, the effect of, on, of uh, you know, social media on election campaigns through to what uh, the presence of Amazon does to small town businesses, for example, or, you know, uh, people who are running uh, small businesses um, in, uh, on, a, on the street front and say, for example, on Robson Street in, in, in Vancouver. So, you know, they're, they're, they're a mixed blessing at the moment, I would say. Yeah, and judging by, you know, you look at some of the hearings in the United States, uh, the general conversation in the EU, and even here in Canada, there is, uh, I think, a broader conversation of social media and tech and uh, how big a company should be allowed to get, number one, and number two, how much of our personal information they have, should have access to as well. Um, I want to ask you this question because you're constantly polling, and it is off topic just for a moment. We obviously are seeing pushback, as you probably have in central Canada, in regards to some of these uh, healthcare measures that have come in now. Uh, I wouldn't call them lockdowns, but certainly, you know, temporary shutdown of bars and, and uh, yoga studios and gyms. Uh, so there's obviously, in federally, of course, they announced yesterday that there's going to be temporary health help for some of these businesses. Um, I I view January 29th as month one of this pandemic. So this would make it now the 24th month or the tail end of two years of this pandemic. How difficult is it for elected officials heading into year three now in this pandemic to convince people to follow the rules and move them along collectively as a society to deal with this issue? Because I, 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 I'm hearing more pushback than ever before. Uh, people are a bit fed up, and that's common. But are you seeing even in your polling that it's getting difficult for elected officials, public health officers as well, to move the public along to collectively work together to still deal with this pandemic as we head into year three? Yeah, definitely. So we uh, released a poll with uh, Global last week showing um, that 54% of Canadians would agree to lockdowns if it was needed to in order to uh, uh, to deal with uh, with this uh, this wave that we're going through right now but 54 compa- compares to in the 80s when we were asking similar questions last year wow. so what's ha- what's happened is it's a, it's an interesting combination of things one you know uh, uh, you know is being fed up i think people are fed up with a lot of this but the second thing is uh, we have very high percentages of the public that have been um, vaccinated in Canada. So people, to a certain extent, might falsely feel that they're you know, completely protected from being infected by Omicron. They've, they've, they're, uh, they're, they've gone and got their two vaccines. An increasing number of people are getting their third. So they don't feel as much at risk as they, they, they did in the past. Um, so what's happening here is that we're, we're learning to live with it, I would say. And by living with it, it doesn't mean living in lockdown. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of figuring out ways to negotiate our way through this, uh, through the difficulties that we're going through. Um, and and the, the mood has changed very much from where it was last year. Now, that doesn't mean that the most important issue isn't COVID. It's now moved back up into first place again as the most important issue facing the country. But the level of intensity around concern is not what it was even 12 months ago. Mm. So if, if we were to do something, and it's very hard for you to answer this question, but if, if we were to do this again, let's just say even a temporary lockdown or what we're doing here now over Christmas in Ontario and British Columbia and Quebec, uh, this is going to be increasingly difficult to do six months from now, isn't it? Well, it is, particularly in six months from now when we, if we have a similar take up in terms of vaccines where we have large numbers of Canadians being vaccinated, uh, not a lot of people necessarily know people who've been, you know, become infected. Um, they, they, businesses are, you know, that were, uh, you know, temporarily out of, uh, uh, you know, out of business uh, will be gone forever. I mean, there's, there's, there, it gets harder and harder as we go along to maintain what's going on. And, you know, the, 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 the public person is, isn't endless either. And people are concerned about the cost that's going mm-hmm. into uh, to, to dealing with these problems. So it's, uh, you know, the, the first year it was, you know, kind of everybody on deck, all, all hands on deck. As we get into the second year, uh, some of those hands are not necessarily going to be reaching out and joining other people. It's, it's going to get tougher as time goes on. Yeah. Daryl, thank you for your time. Merry Christmas to you, and thank you for, for your time today, your expertise, and, of course, joining us on a regular basis here on Mornings with Simi. Take care of yourself. 
Appreciate it. Thanks, Jess. All right. That's Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, talking about the naughty and nice list this year when it comes to our politicians, our CEOs, and of course, our healthcare workers uh, uh, globally. It looks like uh, uh, Justin Trudeau is going to get some coal, along with Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, uh, and, according, and our tech CEOs as well. But our healthcare workers are definitely, definitely on the nice list. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, yesterday we got an email from Anna Ludonowski, owner of Emerge Fitness in Cloverdale. Uh, she said to us in that email that she was sad, angry, and incredibly frustrated uh, by the new rules and regulations in regards to gym and fitness centers uh, shutting down um, temporarily until January 18. Uh, Anna owns Emerge Fitness Studio, a boutique fitness studio in Cloverdale. Uh, she joins us now. Good morning, Anna. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for, for writing to us and, and sharing some of your concerns. And I'm hearing and seeing a lot of um, folks who own gyms and fitness studios commenting and, and, and really expressing their concerns. So I want to hear from you a little bit. Is this the second time now you've had to shut down as a business or third time? Uh, nope. Actually, this is the third time, if you can believe it. Uh, we were pretty sure after the second time that was going to be it. But uh Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. So third time, yeah. Third time. How many, uh, if you don't include this moment at this point, uh, how many weeks and months have you had to shut shut down in the last couple of years? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, we closed at the end of March uh, in 2020, uh, reopened in June of 2020, uh, closed again, I think it was, uh, or scaled back in November, then again, same time last year in December again we closed so uh, missed out again on the the January you know uh, big time for us in yeah. gyms obviously uh, and here we are again this year. So how so, many yeah. how many people do you have in your in your gym uh, because it is a boutique uh, fitness studio? How many people it generally is. exercise? How many people are attending uh, the facility? So basically, uh, we uh, have about eight women right now. So we're a ladies only uh, facility. And um, at our peak uh, during, you know, prior to COVID, of course, we were about 10 to 12, depending on what type of class it was. Uh, at our lowest point, we went down to six people, um, which we're 1,500 square feet. I mean, that's, that's a lot of space for mm-hmm. six people, and even now at eight people. Um, so I guess this is where some of the frustration is. We're, we're not a big box you know, facility like a, a Trevor Linden and, you know, Planet Fitness or Hollywood and stuff like that, right? I mean, yeah. the, they have hundreds of people in there. We have eight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I mean, it, it's sort of boggling that we would be included in that same type of uh, category, right? Yeah. Have you been provided any information either through the health authority or any provincial agency that said, look, and the comments I generally get is, look, um, in the Vancouver Canucks are allowed uh, to continue <laughs> playing before all, all this Omicron yeah. stuff hit, hit players, but it's still 50% capacity. Yeah. That puts you at about 8,000 people. And, exactly. you, and you there with, as you say, with eight participants potentially in a 1,500-square-foot facility, have you been provided any sort of information or specifics as to why they believe you're a bigger risk than potentially even a hockey game? No, and and I guess, again, this is where more frustration comes into play is is the lack of information. And even last year, especially, uh, whenever something came on, any kind of directive came in or, or provincial health order, it came in and then there was this, oh, but details will follow. And you're like, well, okay, so then you're waiting for details. No details are coming. You know, were we considered a gym or are we considered... A fitness studio. Well, we are a fitness studio. So are we the same as the big box gyms? Like there, there just wasn't any clarity. And, and, and so you're sitting there going, well, I want to do the right thing. I want to be safe. I want to make sure all of our, our clients are safe, our trainers. But the directives have been really lacking in, in details, truly. Uh, I'm curious, have you um, applied for uh, federal help uh, or provincial help uh, previously when when you had to shut down? Well, this is part of the challenge too, right? Uh, Originally, a lot of those, um, the criteria for those uh, subsidies and, and stuff um, we didn't qualify for that. How come? You know, we, I had, well, I had purchased, um, I used to be a client actually at our uh, studio 
And then when it came up for sale, I purchased it, which was three years ago now. And so we were in a growth phase, you know, we were, we were growing, we were adding trainers, et cetera. So we didn't qualify for the thresholds. Uh, we didn't have enough of a dip in, in our um, uh, grossly sales each month, right? So that was a bit tricky. Um, we ultimately did qualify for some, but I mean, it was, it was nominal at best. Uh, luckily, our trainers did also qualify uh, once it was uh, a change that they could be uh, self-employed, right? Because our, all of our trainers are contractors, as is in our industry, right? Mm-hmm. So luckily, but, you know, it, it's kind of like too little too late at that point. Um, and, and so this is this is the hard part, right? <laughs> so can you apply this time? Do you, or do you feel comfortable with what the Prime Minister announced yesterday and potentially what we may hear today uh, from Ravi Kalon uh, on the provincial side? Do you think because this time has passed, you've got some uh, history now after you bought the, 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 the business that you might be able yeah. to um, qualify for for this temporary help at this point? I, I sincerely hope so. I, I, I think, and I speak on behalf of, of any of us in, in the fitness industry, we lease our facilities, you know, so our, our landlords still want to get paid, um, and, and that's our biggest expense. I mean, that's in the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars every month. Now, if you're closed, well, then we have to suspend all of our, uh, you know, monthly memberships and, and stuff like that, so there's no revenue coming in. Um, but yet I still got to cough up thousands of dollars for my rent each month, right? Yeah. So uh, if anything, I would love to see something for rent uh, assistance. Do, right? you, do, you, do you think uh, this decision was made, I assume, because something, the data that Dr. Henry has seen, uh, and she gets lots of data every day coming at her, says that this is a bigger risk, gyms are bigger risks than um, certain restaurants, uh, restaurants generally, and uh, right. Vancouver Canuck games. Uh, would you like to see that data? I mean, beyond the yeah, temporary fiscal help, I think the industry would like to see that data is what you're saying at the end of the day. Yeah, I really would. And, and if I could even take that one step further, um, everybody that enters our facility, as is common in, in any fitness uh, or gym or anything like that, um, they're all double vaccinated. We're all distance. We're all masks coming in and out of the facility. We, we've got tons of space, all that good stuff. Um, but yet you can still go to a mall. I'd like to see what the data is for people hitting malls at this time of year where they're crowded. You're not required to show any kind of uh, vax passport or anything like that. There's no limit on how many people can be in a mall or a Costco or a Walmart or whatever the case may be. But yet you're picking on a gym. <laughs> like yeah. I don't. Where's that data? I haven't seen any data. Uh, I'd love to see that. Yeah, I hope. For, um, hopefully, you know, there's maybe some... there's an argument. I don't know what it is, but yeah. <laughs> well, I hope there is some clarity right? for your industry, and I know uh, it's I a real so difficult too. time as well. And I thank you so much for your time and sharing your story with us. Merry Christmas to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, and Merry Christmas to all of you. This is mornings with Simi. Well, folks, welcome back to Mornings with Simi. I'm Jazz Joe Hall. Yesterday, as you were watching the news, you probably had noticed that Federal Housing Minister Ahmed Hussain, oh, sorry, Ahmed Hussein told Reuters in an interview that housing uh, should be for Canadians to live in, not passive foreign investment. He also added that cities should be rezoned to add more density as housing costs continue to rise in Canada. Joining us now to discuss the issue is Michael Geller, city planner and architect. Michael, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Good morning. So, Michael, based on the minister's comment, Minister Sain's comments, um, is it fair to assume that by next budget, um, which will be February of 2022, we can expect a significant um, policy changes in regards to home ownership and at least a honest and thoughtful uh, response towards looking at housing affordability for once in this country? Well, I'd love to say absolutely. But uh, I should point out, I worked for the federal government for 10 years. Actually worked there when uh, Trudeau's father was in charge. Okay. And uh, so I've watched federal programs come and go over the years. I I should start off, though, by saying I I agree entirely with the prime minister and the minister that we need to be building housing for people, Canadians, to live in. And uh, I deplore as much as probably most of your listeners going down a street and seeing a lot of empty houses 
and knowing that that negatively impacts the commercial in the neighborhood and so forth. So I am not here to sort of encourage the federal government to continue to allow foreign investment to dominate the market. But the real question is whether or not this proposed ban is really the right way to go. Mm. And so, I mean, since Justin Trudeau has been prime minister, uh, a typical home in Canada now costs 81% more. I think in the Vancouver market, the average house price of the whole metro Vancouver has gone up by $400,000 since 2015, since Justin Trudeau uh, has been uh, prime minister. Um, Do you believe, if if it's not the foreign buyer ban, so a place like metro Vancouver is it getting tougher with municipalities in regards to approvals being faster? Does the provincial government have a bigger role to play? Uh, can the federal government at the end of the day uh, play a role which would actually, you know, ignite more uh, more supply but make it easier for developers to, to, to get that supply built? Like what is it you, in your mind, if you could be king for a day, what would you do if it isn't beyond just banning foreign ownership? What would you say needs to be done broadly to get things going in the city? Well, I think the, 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 the Prime Minister is correct in highlighting the fact that the approval process at municipalities is something that does need to be addressed. And the fact that he's even mentioning it is significant because, as many of your listeners know, it's really up to the municipalities and the provinces, as you pointed out, that ultimately have the final say on approvals. But the fact that the federal government is saying this has to be addressed and pointing to New Zealand, which is also taking similar measures, I think that's significant. The way the federal government can impact this is by saying, if you want more money for, say, a new transit, a new sky train, or a new uh, fast train out to the valley, we'll only make that money available if you commit to building so many homes in a period of time. That's one way that they can impact that. Mm -hmm. But uh, Francis Bueller wrote a column uh, yesterday in which he pointed out a nonprofit trying to build affordable housing starts off assuming it's going to take two years to get approval to build housing. I mean, when you think about it, it's not. It shouldn't take two years. Yeah. And now, one of the things uh, the minister talked about was um, an anti-flipping tax, potentially. Now, on paper, that sounds good. Uh, I think most Canadians would be supportive of that. At the same time, one could look at it and say, wait a minute here, that's private capital being used for housing, and you do want the private sector to be involved, and public policy can guide a lot of those private sector dollars. Um, Do you think uh, an anti-flipping tax, while very popular, may discourage private investment and the building of, let's say, rental property and, you know, uh, townhouses and condos as well? Do you worry that it may have the opposite effect? I I actually think it's a bit rhetorical because the fact is right now, if somebody does buy a condominium, whether through a pre-sale or after completion, and then sells it, they do pay tax. They pay capital gains tax. Or if they've done it a few times and are deemed to be a, a developer, then they're paying tax as if it was income. So people are paying tax. What the federal government can do, though, is watch out for those people who and, and listeners know this happens. Somebody will buy a house, claim it's their principal residence, maybe fix it up a little bit, sell it in 10 months, not pay any tax on that. Now, there's an area where I think the federal government can play a significant role. But the, you're, you're quite right in asking the question, Jazz, because if we go too far in terms of deterring people from building housing and buying housing and renting it out, we're actually going to exacerbate the situation we have now. Because the problem we have right now is there's more people looking for housing than able to find the right kind of housing. Absolutely. Now, with uh, the federal budget in 2022 and, of course, a municipal election cycle beginning, I'm sure, we will have you on this show many, many times, and the discussion about affordability and housing will be front and center for 2022. Michael, thank you so much. Have a wonderful holiday season. Thank you for inviting me to join you. It's my pleasure. Same to you. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Mornings with Simi. Thank you for joining us on your commute to work today. I've also got an email here from Florence who says, Hi, Jazz. Our Vancouver Thunderbird chorus sang Night of Silence uh, at our Christmas concert last week. Please check out our Facebook page. We will do that. That's the Vancouver Thunderbird Chorus, uh, which sang Night of Silence. We'll definitely check that out uh, after the show for for sure. Uh, please give us a call. Like I said, we'd love to play as many songs as we possibly can uh, for this show. Well, Surrey City Council will vote on the final adoption of their uh, 2022 budget tomorrow. After just more than three days to review the budget, Surrey residents and council got their chance to have their input in the city's five-year financial plan. So 2022 to 2026, during a daytime meeting yesterday, the city of Surrey held a sparsely attended finance committee meeting that featured fewer than a dozen speakers. The main point of contention was the lack of time to prepare and thoroughly dissect the budget. Now, I want to put this in context for all of you out there. Uh, generally, a budget process for, for a municipality begins somewhere in mid-November or so, sometimes early November, mid-November, late November, in that time. And in the last six weeks or so, CKNW and Global BC have been reporting on uh, cities like Port Coquitlam, Vancouver, Delta, Coquitlam, all of them have gone through various budgetary processes. And what that means is you introduce the budget, uh, you talk about what the priorities of council are going to be that year in regards to you know what, what community centers may be built, which ones will be upgraded, uh, maybe perhaps uh, uh, you know more money being spe- picked, uh, spent on a garbage pickup, your uh, yearly increase in regards to your taxes, all those little things. And of course, then the public has input and then it is approved and then next year, um, the budget moves forward. Well, in the case of Surrey, it was released late last week, uh, late in the day, and basically businesses and uh, residents had very little time to go through um, uh, this v- huge document. Remember, Surrey has a budget of $1.2 billion. So joining us now to talk about uh, this, uh, I, don't, I don't know what you want to call it, a, a budget process, uh, is Jack Kundal, Surrey City Councilor. Hi, Jack. Good morning, Jeff. Walk me through this. I've tried to provide some, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. this boring stuff to most people, but it's boring democracy, but it is democracy. And this is how we uh, consult with uh, uh, taxpayers. This is how taxpayers have input into what they believe their sh- city should be spending money on, where their taxes should be going. Uh, just describe what the last week has been for our listeners. Well, the last week, I, I can tell you, has been a rushed um, process to try to ram this budget through uh, with complete callous disregard for the taxpayer input, for really um, all of council's um, uh, you know, involvement in the process along, like you said, the budget consultation process. This is the city's budget. This is the, the people's budget of what's important to you moving forward into the next year and across a five-year plan. Because we do a, a five-year budget, so we're projecting ahead, not just for the year ahead, but you know, mm-hmm. before after. So what are the priorities? And what we've had over the last few weeks is this rushed budget process. And really, there's no explanation for why it is rushed. The, uh, um, uh, the documents were released online. And as you stated earlier, uh, there's only sparse attendance. I think in total received about 40 emails. Um, and really, none were in support. The process. One of the biggest complaints we heard yesterday from the speakers that were there, uh, and there's people that took time off of work to attend this in the middle of the work week, uh, was, look, we don't have enough time for this. You know, you have consulted with us. Um, and at the end of the day, the city is, is accountable. Um, uh, you know, well, sorry, the elected officials are responsible, uh, you know, for the operation of the, of the city. But, you know, we're accountable to the taxpayers. This is the taxpayers' money that we're spending. And as you said, it's an absolutely huge budget, uh, you know, over a billion dollars every year. So walk me through this. Now, the mayor uh, sent out a release saying that for the fourth consecutive year, property tax increases have stayed at 2.9%, making one of the lowest among Metro Vancouver Mm -hmm. municipalities. At the same time, the National Police Federation said many serial homeowners reported that the real property a tax increase from 2021 was actually closer to 11% because the city, uh, there was a 200% increase from 100 to $300 to the capital parcel levy. And this mm-hmm. is all kind of boring stuff for the average person. But do you believe it's at 2.9% or do you think the mayor in this case and his majority there are burying costs or not including all costs in regards to this particular property tax increase? Well, you hit it right in the head there. They're not including all the costs. 
So I just want to dial it back for a second, though. A 1% increase for Surrey taxpayers is going to be different than a 1% tax increase for a, a Vancouver taxpayer or Port Coquitlam taxpayer, because you're basing it off of a set amount and then 1% on top. So uh, that's one of the first things. So even that 2.9% is not actually 29 because it's really one taxpayer. You're not including, you know, what are the increases in Metro Vancouver for uh, for water and waste? Uh, you know, this um, the capital parcel tax, which last year um, or the year before was $100 per door, and it got up to 300 per door, and that hasn't changed at all. So uh, to me, that's a very, very unfair tax because what you're doing is you're taxing the same amount for someone that lives, say, in a $400,000, $500,000 apartment or condo uh, compared to someone that's living in, you know, a $2, $3 million home. So it's a really unfair taxation on that piece. So the 2.9 is not exactly 2.9. So I want to cut you off here, but I, one of the mm-hmm. things, of course, your community is, is debating, of course, is the uh, the move from RCMP to a municipal or civic police service. Mm-hmm. The budget for that has gone from $19 million from a couple of years ago. Then it moved to, I believe it was $47 million. Presently mm-hmm. in its five-year plan, it says $64 million for that transition. And now the National Police Federation crunched the very numbers of this budget and said that the city uh, has over $17.5 million in unbudgeted one-time transition costs. Now, that's to be believed. You're way – you're close to $81 million for that transition. Some people have said this is going to be closer to $200 million. Do you remotely believe right now the money that has been set aside for this transition for them from RCMP to sorry, police service – is actually going to remain at $64 million? Or do you think there's a, a huge amount of uh, uh, hidden costs there that Surrey residents will have to eat over the years ahead? Uh, well, it's going to be more than what the mayor is projecting it to be and certainly what the Surrey Police Board is projecting it to be. Uh, early on, when we received that 189-page uh, report um, that was done in combination with DPD, uh, even then reading, if you, if you read through that report, you realized that the cost is going to be upwards of probably 200 million dollars uh, by the time it's all said and done uh, and you will probably not get you actually will not get more police officers on the road that's actually for less police officers so you have to look at the capital costs which are going to have to be built out over the years and during that time frame you know what are we not building when we're dumping money into this really failed project yeah, it's it, it, I, to be very blunt. I know we don't have time today. We'll be talking about this in the future. Respectfully to you, uh, Councillor, your city is in a lot of trouble. And I'm not uh, whether you support the mayor, or you don't support the mayor. Yeah. The fact that you have to be open and transparent doesn't matter who voted for you. When you when you're elected, you 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 speak for everybody, even those that don't vote Correct. for you. Period. And when you're going to spend money, be transparent with the costs. And I tell you, I've covered city council for a lot of years in my early days as a reporter. I have never seen. Um, a more dysfunctional council, at the very least, uh, a, a mayor and council that are not, and some mayors and councillors, by the way, not all, all of you there, but that are not open and honest with its residents. I, I am just shocked at the dysfunction and yeah. what I'm seeing over there in Surrey. What is even more shocking is we have a mayor who's facing a charge of public mischief, which is basically lying to the police with the first accord appearance on January 25th of next year. That in itself speaks volumes, Jazz. It That's does. The at the top. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it does. Uh, it very does. Uh, very much does, uh, Mr. Hundle. And. I guess that's that's the way we leave it at this moment. You've got a you've got a vote tomorrow. It looks like with Mayor McCallum and his majority, it will go forward. Uh, but there's a lot to discuss uh, in the months ahead in regards to your police transition and the budget, and, and of course um, the mayor's uh, trial, pending trial, and of course uh, many other issues in Surrey as well. Mr. Hundle, thank you so much. Merry Christmas to you. You too. Merry Christmas, John. This is mornings with Simi. Well, the holidays, of course, are coming up. We're a couple of days away from Christmas. Uh, things can be very challenging during this season. In fact, 1.2 million Canadian youth are affected by mental illness, especially with the COVID-19 Omicron variant raging uh, through our province. Joining us is the CEO of iHealth OX, Terry Story. Good morning, Terry. Hey, how are you? And thanks uh, for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. You know, we were talking yesterday about issues that are before us. Uh, this Christmas and all holidays are challenging for people, particularly young people. Uh, but uh, with Omicron and um, you know Christmas dinners potentially being cancelled, events that kids could be going to to keep them busy, but also uh, to deal with the mental health and well-being, I thought it was important that we talk to you um, this time, especially uh, in regards to what's happening. I guess my first question to you is: How significant of a challenge is mental health uh, among youth this time of the year? 
Well, great question. And I think, you know, what's happening right now is that the ongoing stress, fear, grief, and uncertainty, right, created by COVID-19 has really, like, weighted heavily on youth and families right now. So, you know, we've we've seen in the last, you know, year about a 54% increase between 12 and 17-year-olds of, like, suicidal behavior, you know, their increase in anxiety and depression. So it's a lot. That is amazing. What kind of things should parents and loved ones be looking for when dealing with youth in regards to, you know, signs that say, look, this individual needs help and care? Which kind of things should we be looking for? Well, I think the very first thing and that we saw really prevalent over the last 12 months with youth is um, uh, fatigue, right? We, we and, and actually, you know, young kids and teenagers are actually saying this, that they feel tired. You know, they've been locked in their rooms doing online classwork, you know, for the last 12 months. So that's like just one sign, right? And I think, you know, when you start seeing them not, you know, socializing, right? Or we see them really anxious, you know, even more than prior behavior, right, is a real indicator that something else could be going on. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it, it, this time of the year is always challenging for parents because kids are away from school uh, and they want to have things to do. And, and because of the situation with Omicron, you can't be out and about as much as you would like. And uh, and I'm I'm a parent and, and, you know, you don't want your kids playing video games, sitting at home all day playing video games with, with family and friends and uh, as they do at times. Um, what kind of things do you think we should be focusing on in regards to keeping them busy? You're saying that they are fatigued, but at the same time, you do want to keep them busy and engaged, uh, what kind of things would you recommend? Yeah, and that's actually great. And when you bring up that fatigue, I mean, fatigue like they feel exhausted. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you're right. It is about keeping them busy. And I think some of the general things parents can do right now is actually just have this open dialogue and listen and talk about that we're all going through this, right? So there's this collective feeling that, you know, it's okay to feel like this. It's okay to, you know, do these things. And I think... That's the very first thing, right? And then try to have ideas like getting outside, you know, skating if they can get to outdoor rinks, right? You know, getting out snowshoeing, you know, things that they can do, you know, where they're living, you know, in the winter to keep their kind of mind occupied, but still just reassuring that we're all going through this in very different times, Mm -hmm. right? It's probably the very really calming things to for children used to you know, here that things are going to be okay, even though if it doesn't feel like it at times. Yeah. Uh, in regards to your company, I, I Health OX, um, how much of a demand uh, is there now for uh, conversations in and around mental health? Uh, yours I, I, business, to my understanding, is can be done digitally uh, through an app as well. Give me a sense of the broader societal conversation around mental health and uh, where we are today in regards to that. Oh, we're seeing a huge increase, you know, probably almost 100% increase in just capacity. And we're seeing lots of parents reaching out for parent coaching. We're seeing kids under the age of 12 with, like, increased anxiety over the last year. And we were seeing that kind of trend prior to uh, COVID, right, with, like, mental health is in crisis for youth, right? So. Why is it happening, Terry? Why is it happening? I mean, is it just a question of society opening up and being honest and talking about this for the first time? Is it something that we, is society just much more fast-paced? I'm just trying to get a sense of why now, not just COVID, as you said, prior to COVID as well. Why do you think this is happening? Good, you know, good question. And it's always brought to me. I think that, you know, a good thing of this is that we have our younger generation just talking about it, right, which our generation didn't, right? And I think the second thing is, is that we really have put a lot of expectations on our youth, right, about, you know, doing good in school, having doing good at sports, being good at everything, which puts this really high level of expectation on them. And then we have this helicoptering parents, right? We have a parent who, you know, is is allowing them to make some adult decisions potentially in their teens, yet getting heavily involved with like their schoolwork or, you know, blaming a teacher for, you know, not, um, you know, giving their child an A. So I think it's a combination of all of these things, right, that are just increasing anxiety and depression in youth. Is there, a, I sometimes ask these questions, is there a jurisdiction that does it well? Again, it, partially it's North American culture. We are or a go-go-go society, more so than we think, probably less than Americans, but certainly you've raised some of those issues here as well. Is, this, is there a society that does it well, or is it just a case of us as, as Canadians and as Westerners perhaps 
thinking and, and perhaps wrapping our heads around maybe life should be a little bit slower, perhaps when it was 30 or 40 years ago? Is that part of it? Like, How do we change this cycle? Well, I, I, and again, I agree, is that I think that people need to realize this is, you know, a national crisis. You know, I, I, I tell people that mental unwellness is one of the biggest threats to our nation, right? It isn't Canadian specific, it's worldwide, right? Now, anxiety and depression is one of the leading causes of um, disability, right, in the world. So we're all in it together, right? So, and I think it's, you know, lots of things are happening. And I think, you know, the one thing is we're just not taught coping skills or stress management, right? In our curriculum, their parents are not teaching us those things because we weren't taught, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's, you know, starting to evolve. How do we build resiliency and how do we start teaching coping skills to, to people to manage stressful events, right? Yeah. So if you were to give advice right now to just uh, my listeners uh, today, uh, what would you say to them in regards to like, is it, should we be in a proactive way, go to our kids and say, look, this is what Omicron is. This is the challenge that is before you and us collectively as a family, as cousins, as society. And we're going to get through this together. And do you want, is it about opening up the lines of communications? I'm just trying to think if I were to go home today and have a conversation with my son, what do you think I should be saying? What you just said is perfect. I mean, that's like, you know, and just really normalizing it and bringing down the expectations that everything has to be perfect. Christmas has to roll it this way, you know, and letting them know we may not have all the answers, but it's okay. Right. And just taking those, that stress from families and parents and then taking off the kids because they feel our stress. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're exactly right. Exactly what you said. That is the, if I had to give one tip. That is the tip. <laughs> that is the tip. Well, thank you so much, uh, um, and I really appreciate your time today because I think this is such a a huge issue for British Columbians today. And, and, and as you said, it was there before uh, COVID, but it has gotten a lot tougher, not only f- for all of us as adults, but especially children as well. So, Terry, if people wanted to know more about uh, your organization, uh, iHealthOX, where can they go? Yeah, they can go to iHealthOX.com. They can go to Charlie Wellbeing, which is our teen platform. You know, the CEO is Matthew Segal. Um, So, yeah, they can go both places to reach out to us if they need support or just want some guidance or navigation. Um, we're here for everyone. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Terry, and Merry Christmas to you. Yes, thank you, and Merry Christmas to you. All thank right. you. Thank you. That's Terry Story, CEO of iHealthOX, um, talking to us today about mental health. Uh, during COVID, particularly around the 1.2 million Canadian youth that are affected by mental illness. And you could only imagine the stress challenge um, that kids are going through right now. Uh, you know, think of the fact of uh, Christmas dinners that perhaps are cancelled, uh, play dates, uh, time with family that they're looking forward to um, that may have now been altered and changed and not sure why. And uh, I think it was important that we talk about this today. And we continue to talk about it over the holiday season as well. So I thank Terry uh, for her time uh, on this issue as well. This is Mornings with Simi. Welcome back to Mornings with Simi. I'm Jazz Johal. And of course, you're listening to Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Uh, it peaked to the number one slot on Billboard's Hot 100 chart for the third year in a row. So this year, uh, Carrie's uh, Christmas Carol was first released in 1994, and it hit number one for the first time in more than 20 years in 2019. And an interesting tidbit, it, it uh, was actually uh, uh, part of the soundtrack for the movie Love Actually. So there's a song that was released a decade prior uh, and then played in the movie and then gained popularity. Uh, in fact, in uh, two years ago, in 2019... Spotify says its records show that uh, that particular song that you're listening to was played 12 million times on Christmas Day alone. Now, this segment is actually not based on science. It's actually based on a conversation. Our two producers, uh, Jason Manoas and Greg Schott, we were talking about this the other day, that when you listen to Christmas songs, uh, the classics specifically, and uh, what, what I mean by that is the popular songs, a lot of them are written decades and decades ago that it's very difficult to uh, produce a Christmas song today that turns into a classic or is a hit. 
Uh, Mariah Carey's is a classic one where this is a, that is actually a classic song, but it was in 1994 when it was released, and it still took a while before it became a hit. Now everybody, of course, listens to it. Like I said, 12 million plays in 2019 on Spotify alone. But think about that for a second. White Christmas. We all love White Christmas. 1942 is when it came out with Bing Crosby. I'll be home for Christmas. Once again, another Bing, Bing Crosby tune. 1943. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, first sang by Judy Garland, 1944. And yesterday, um, our own talk show host here, Mike Smith, says his favorite song was Nat King Cole's The Christmas Song, 1946. And we obviously have modern artists who um, sing the classics. But why is it so difficult to produce a song, a modern song, an original song, that turns into a classic um, moving forward. And that's one of the conversations we were having. That's the kind of stuff we do after the show. We have those conversations in and around. Why is it so hard, as um, as uh, Jason and, and Greg say, uh, for a to produce a certified banger, as they called it? Well, joining us now to talk about this issue is Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator. Good morning, Eric. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. Uh, we, we've been looking forward to this segment for a while because we were, we were talking about this, and it's quite true. We've got great artists uh, this era and the last two or three decades that you know we've grown up listening listening to, but it's tough to create a Christmas classic, it seems, compared to the songs that people really, really love. What's your, what are your thoughts in regards to just uh, Mariah Carey's song, but more importantly, how come we don't see classics that were written in the modern era? Yeah, you, you know, what's interesting is that Spotify is uploading right now 60,000 new songs a day and 190,000 on New Music Friday, and that's the release date for the music industry. When you're talking about Christmas music, it seems like every single artist on the history of the planet, in the history of the world, has a holiday song. So it's tough to get noticed brand new artist with your regular song any other time during the year when your competition is every other artist trying to have their own hit during the holidays with a small window of three weeks really um it's really really difficult but christmas music itself it's supposed to be pleasing and uplifting it has a feeling of, of nostalgia and the last two years really are years where people are going to want to forget what's going on. Um, And that's where you end up with a Mariah Carey song that came out in 94, continue to sell and sell, and right now still be at the number one spot, is because it's a throwback to the Phil Spector Motown 1960s era, which now you've got double nostalgia. You have all these people that grew up in the 90s realizing how good that song was and then you have all these older people who grew up with motown thinking well that song is like the shirelles or that song is like the supreme so it's no different than that so you get a little bit of a double whammy of success with that one in particular yeah we were going through some of the modern artists uh, greg and i this morning uh we were, we were talking about uh, justin bieber i wonder if you have that song uh, greg if you can play that I'm going to talk a little bit over this song. That's Justin Bieber singing with Boys to Men. Now, you got a great band like Boys to Men, uh, R&B group uh, I grew up uh, listening to. Justin Bieber, modern artist, a very popular, uh, selling singles around the world. Um, mm. And th- this particular song that we were listening to, there was Fa La 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 La. It's it, it didn't catch on. I mean, I'm not saying it's not a bad song, uh, but it didn't catch on yet. You got two very high profile uh, entities there, Justin Bieber himself, and of course, Boys to Men. Is part of the problem also that music itself, the industry itself, has become too corporate or too formulaic as well in regards to something that is so, um, you know, the, 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 the old songs to me are simple. The, they use simple wording and a simple message. Is that part yeah. of it? Yeah. There's definitely something about that. You know, look, if you listen to Jose Feliciano, Feliz Navidad, there's really, there's eight words in the entire song. You know, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas from the bottom of my heart. You know, there's 12 if you want to include that verse. But there's something to be said for music that's made by computers without using human emotions and and how human beings feel about that when it comes to, say, dopamine being released in your brain. When you hear a human voice that 
that cracks when you hear a mistake in a song when you hear real drums that you know are being performed by a real human being it gives you a different reaction as if you were listening to a bunch of computers make it and there's no slight to any of these artists that make that kind of music i'm sure my parents said the exact same things when i was listening to duran duran in the 1980s (laughs) that this is not music you know um but there is something still about the social media aspect of all of it that I think is, isn't getting enough attention is that social media made Mariah Carey's song. You know, you couldn't escape going online without seeing a meme about it or Brenda Lee's song or Bing Crosby's song. It was omnipresent. I think we have to wait another 10 or 15 years for songs from today's artists to see which ones are actually a being made fun of and b which ones are actually lasting throughout all of this um you know look at wham's last christmas yep. you know it it was the number two song for years and years and years never cracked number one in fact it was the biggest selling single in the world without actually hitting number one on the uk charts it's only in the last two years where it exploded because of the absolute gloriness and cheesiness of the song and then the video. So people can kind of pay homage to it, making fun of it, but at the same time loving the fact that it's so amazingly perfect when it comes to a song. So sometimes it's just like TikTok or Twitter or Facebook that moves it forward without any corporation behind it. Yeah, no, I think Mariah Carey is a classic example, which was a slow build. Um, the Wham song, the George Michael song that you talked about, is another classic um, from the modern era, one of the few. And I used Justin Bieber and, and Boys to Men with Fala La. That one didn't, that what didn't land well, but it may in 10 or 15 years. But Justin Bieber's uh, other song that one of our other producers, Corey Latondra, was saying, Under the Mistletoe, has done well. And I think is one well on its way to turn into a classic one day. Is there a particular one that you like yourself, uh, Eric? Um, that's new? Yeah. Not, not really. I got to be honest with you. I still kind of go to the classic songs. I still go to um, Rocking Around the Christmas Tree, mm-hmm. and I still go to Baby, Please Come Home by Darlene Love. Like, anything on that Phil Spector album is great. So, you know, the Vince Guaraldi trio, Christmas Time is Here, that album is still on the Billboard Hot um, uh album charts in the top 10 it it climbed back into the top 10 um this week chuck berry's run rudolph run i'm still all about before it became almost like a commercialization that everybody had to make one because at the time even the music industry up until like the mid-1990s, really didn't know what they were sitting on in terms of how much money was to be made during the holiday season. And partly because record stores can only take X amount of new releases and old titles. They were limited by shelf space. Now with Spotify and other music streaming services, sky's the limit. You want to make 40 songs on your record all holiday? Go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Eric, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it. Merry Christmas to you. You too. Thanks so much for having me.